This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Tired of all the nonsense on Twitter? Well, so is Twitter. It says it's going to get tougher now on misinformation during a time of crisis. The company is saying it's going to add warning notices to tweets with misinformation during things like armed conflict, natural disasters, and public health emergencies. We'll go in-depth into whether this will actually work and if, in the re- or, and if it's a response to Elon Musk possibly taking over soon. President Biden finally uses the Defense Production Act to get baby formula back on store shelves. But could this have all been avoided? Russia moving troops around Ukraine, focusing more on the east. We'll look into whether this plan is going to work. And Ford has a problem with vehicles that catch fire even when they're shut off. COVID cases keep going up, as do the number of people in the hospitals. Mask recommendations are back. Mandates might be next in some areas, but are too are people just too fatigued to uh, put those back on? Another strange disease is out there. You heard about monkeypox. Uh, it's here in the U.S., so we'll talk about that. And then California dealing with another invasive pest. It's a worm, uh, and it jumps. It can make it like a foot in the air. Why does it want to do that? Well, we'll, t- we'll find out. And it's eating stuff that is not good, apparently. So. Well. Okay. Talk about jumping worms at the end of the show. Can't wait. (laughs) We start, though, with Twitter and its war against misinformation and disinformation. Jeffrey Blevins is a social media expert and professor in the Department of Journalism and School of Public and International Affairs at the uh, University of Cincinnati. Jeffrey, thanks for being with us. Uh, Well, Twitter's been around a long time now, and this controversy has been around a long time now about mis- and disinformation uh, on the social uh, website. Why do you suppose all of a sudden now they plan on coming out with these box warnings? Well, uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's good to be here, Mike Charles. Uh, I think the timing is is curious. Uh, on one hand, uh, the you know the Biden administration had just withdrew its proposal for a misinformation or disinformation governance board, uh, which was certainly not popular among uh, conservatives, but also a lot of First Amendment absolutists uh, as as well. Uh, And this could be uh, somewhat of a compromise, uh, too. Uh, We know that, you know, currently Twitter has um, suspended, you know, uh, the account of former President Trump. Uh, Elon Musk has said he wants to uh, bring him back. Well, the way I read this policy, maybe it's meant to, um, you know, mitigate some of the damage that, you know, popular celebrities or, you know, thought leaders, information leaders uh, can wreck when they uh, disseminate uh, misinformation. Is this pretty similar to what Facebook does or is it another step? Facebook kind of puts a warning at the bottom of a post. This would cover it up, right? Unless you right. clicked through to the other side to see what they say is misinformation. Right. Uh, what Twitter is proposing here is that they will not prioritize, um, you know, the, the, the alleged tweet in, um, you know, in, in the news feed. Uh, but also, uh, you know, they, they, they cover it up with a warning, but they will disable people from being able to like it, uh, share it, uh, retweet it. So that way would, you know, mitigate its spread to keep something from uh, potentially going viral. And what do you suppose happens if somebody disagrees with their decision? What's the appeal? <laughs> well, that's going to be up, up to Twitter. And, and that's the, you know, the thing, the way that 
um, our uh, social media platforms are regulated is essentially they aren't. They have First Amendment rights as a platform uh, similar to us humans. So you can, you know, uh, write them, complain to them uh, about it, but uh, you're not really titled to any other recourse uh, than that. How are they going to vet these posts? They do some of this already, but are they going to need to be doing more of it once this goes into effect? Well, that's the thing is like we really don't know what's behind the curtain. I mean, we, we have to go by, uh, you know, the letter of what they write. And I'm quoting here. They say, as soon as we have evidence that a claim may be misleading, but they don't say, well, OK, well, what, what does that evidence look like? Very generally earlier in their announcement, they do say that they will seek to verify from multiple credible sources, including journalists. So as a journalist, uh, uh, I like that. Uh, but, you know, how well they they do that, it's really a matter of, of self-regulation, uh, their their own taste and their own sense of what is was credible and what is incredible. But as you know, uh, only a few short years ago, uh, all of these sites, Facebook, Twitter, they all made the claim that they are nothing more than, you know, the telephone company, that they're just there for a free exchange of uh, people's opinions, much like people call one another in the phone. And the phone company is not responsible for what people say on the on the telephone calls. The more they go down this road of uh, taking, you know, having boxed warnings, stopping people from being able to, in this case, retweet Aren't they, in effect, now becoming publishers like a newspaper or magazine? And does that not lead to putting them in a very precarious position? I think it does. And a lot of what you, you, know, you said there it reminds me of you know, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act uh, from 1996, which is, this, uh, at least at one time, it was very obscure law. But essentially, it says that interactive computer service operators websites and now social media companies are they'd have no responsibility for third-party content uh, however that is their business model they vend uh, third-party content and the more third party parties are on there making commentary uh, the more valuable uh, that platform uh, is now they could you know keep their their hands off it and that's something that we we have to keep in mind here too uh, that Twitter is under no legal obligation to try to regulate, uh, you know, perceived misinformation or disinformation in this way. But I do agree with you that the more they do this, uh, the more they do seem like like publishers. And, it, you know, it begs the question of, of whether Section 230 uh, should uh, be the law much longer. Jeffrey Blevins, social media expert, professor, Department of Journalism, University of Cincinnati. Right now, though, moms could be uh, getting some relief soon. President Biden invoking the Defense Production Act to speed production of baby formula. Now, this comes after Abbott said it reached an agreement with U.S. health regulators to restart production at its largest factory in the country. But could this problem simply have been dealt with a lot earlier? Alyssa Rosenberg is a columnist for The Washington Post, and she's been critical in her recent columns about how this entire issue has suddenly become political. Alyssa, thank you for joining us. Uh, we knew about, when I say we, uh, regulators knew that Abbott was having a problem, and I think they have about 40 percent, if I'm not mistaken, of the baby formula market in this country. They knew they had a problem months ago. 
Why are we first getting around to, it seems to be anyway, getting a remedy now in almost June? So I think there are a couple of things going on here. I don't want to understate the complexity of this process because I think it's worth it to take a minute to talk through what's going on here. You know, the FDA um, got a whistleblower complaint about um, Abbott Sturgis Michigan Production Facility in October. Uh, and the factory, there was a voluntary recall of formula produced at that factory in February. Um, my understanding from talking to the FDA, listening to hearings, et cetera, is that they were hopeful that they would be able to get the factory back online more quickly than turned out to be the case. And given how much formula that factory produces, specifically um, sort of specialized metabolic formulas for kids who have allergies or have other sort of genetic errors in metabolism, um, this rippled throughout the country and became a real challenge. Um, And while when that realization, when it became clear that they weren't going to be able to open that factory immediately, sort of a couple things started happening. Um, the White House uh, started talking to other formula producers and their companies like Gerber and Mead Johnson that um, produce formula as well and trying to get them to increase production. Um, and the FDA uh, went into talks with Abbott um, to reopen the plant under a consent decree, which basically means that there is sort of a legal framework in place for the FDA to oversee um, uh, the reopening of that plant. Uh, and that you know, it's going to take some time. Um, Barbara Califf, the FDA commissioner, said at a House Appropriations hearing today that, you know, the, the work to get the, con- the conditions of the consent decree implemented are underway, um, and they're anticipating that they'll be able to open it within that two-week uh, time that two-week time frame that um, they said earlier in the week. Um, meanwhile, the Biden administration invoked the Defense Production Act. They're um, starting with the client operation supply formula, which is using Defense Department contracted commercial planes. Yeah, but why formula. why didn't they do that earlier? Why didn't they do that months ago? I mean, to, you got to lean into are, it, right? If, you, if yeah. once they knew that the plant wasn't coming back as as fast as they were hoping it would come back, and then at that point, that's when you hopefully realize, wait, how much formula comes from this plant? We got to go and buy it yeah, somewhere else. I, and, and I, I mean, I think it's useful. I think it's useful to be honest with people about the complexities of what's going on here because it's not like that, you know, this is a highly specialized product. You can't just flip a switch and you want it to be safe, right? But I absolutely agree that once it became clear that this plant was going to be shut down for a while, you know, it would have been incredibly useful to pull together, you know, the president, the FDA commissioner, the heads of all the major formula companies and say, look, this is going to be a problem. You may well be stressed out. This is what we're doing about it. Um, because, you know, I think there, you know, there have been some concerns about panic buying and look, I'm, I'm the mom to a seven month old. I can't, you know, fault anyone who goes out and buys the food that they need to feed their baby. Right. But, um, you know, rather than, you know, sort of letting it simmer, let the work go on behind the scenes, have an honest conversation with people about what the challenges are going to be, what the government is going to do. Um, and maybe they would have had less to, less to announce on February 17th when uh, the recall okay, was so, announced. But, so, they could, but they could have said something. Okay, and but, they could have just talked to people in a candid and useful way. Um, and, and, and this reminds me, right, and this reminds me, uh, very frankly, about uh, what happened with the rollout of, of vaccines for the pandemic and then the anti 
viral pills where there would be these news conferences and the public was being told, you know, these are going to be ready in weeks where you can go to your, your pharmacy and pick up these pills and people would go and they couldn't get them. Now we're being told, mothers are being told, that they, they will soon be able to get uh, baby formula on the supermarket shelves. A, can we believe the timetable? And B, what really is the timetable? Again, I mean, I think that, and you know, trying to lean into being mad about this isn't necessarily the most productive thing to do, even if it is a really upsetting situation. And again, part of what's complicated about this is that it's not like formula is unavailable at the same level in every store in the country, right? There are like there are cities, uh, including I think San Antonio and Houston, where you know, there's just a lot less stock on the shelves. Some places, the levels are much closer to normal. And so it's sort of herky-jerky. I, I am very curious to see what the actual effect of some of these policy changes is. Um, I mean, overall, my understanding is that in between increased production at Gerber and some of the other companies, formula production is actually up relative to where it was before the recall. And so my hope is that families will start to see more formula on shelves soon. Whether that's their preferred brand is an open question. And I think for parents who rely on these specialty and metabolic formulas, that's really challenging. Um, you know, the, uh, the FDA is supposed to be reviewing in an expedited way applications from overseas manufacturers who haven't normally been allowed to sell their product in the U.S. but might be able to sell it here, uh, might want to sell right. it here now. Yeah. I'm curious to see whether they will, whether those overseas companies will actually want to enter a market under a deal that only gives them access for 180 days, especially if they get accused then of contributing to shortages in their home countries. You know, I, I the administration has not been super detailed about um, what sort of shortages of supplies or packaging material led to them invoking the Defense Production Act. I will, So I can't really speak to whether that is going to Okay. Right. No, no. Right. Uh, but an interesting problem, and it will be interesting to see when this gets resolved. Alyssa Rosenberg, columnist for The Washington Post. Coming up, monkeypox, officially here in the U.S. Not quite sure people were waiting for it, but it is here. So what can you do? Just what we need. Just another we need. thing. Well, and there is another thing. Funny you should mention that because there's also jumping worms, <laughs> and they're here in California, and we will tell you why and where they're jumping. Those seem better than the other thing. Than the monkeypox? Yeah. Yes, unless you get both together. <laughs> well, what a day. All right, now, uh, Russia has shifted most of its focus to eastern Ukraine following a pullback of its forces uh, near Kiev. The troops now in control of many parts of the south of the country, including uh, Mariupol. Does this show Russia's changing its objectives? John Spencer, retired U.S. Army major, chair of urban warfare studies at the uh, Madison Policy Forum. He's got a new book coming out it's called Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, and Social Connections in Modern War. So what do you think is Russia's... Uh, end game here if they even see one yet is it just to get as much territory as they can in some of these regions and and hold on to it if they can because that whole uh, blitzkrieg thing taking the whole country really did not work out yeah i think you're spot on i mean they they started a war to take the entire country they failed in the battle of Kiev, the capital now just this last week they failed in the second largest city the battle of Kharkiv. So now they're just doing a really fatal effort to try to grab as much territory in the eastern section of Ukraine. And really, you have to understand the the geography. Like That's still like 900-plus kilometers of terrain they're trying to seize with this small 
mold, depleted, no morale army, uh, they're failing on every front, in my opinion. And, you know, I was going to ask you, as, as a, a former military guy, uh, what do you think is going through the minds of the the military commanders, you know, in Russia and also those who are still in Ukraine? Well, once I got past the, like, initial shock of disbelief that their army couldn't do what they thought they could do, and I honestly think that they thought they could do something, and the war is the greatest test of whatever you think, uh, and, and the fact that they couldn't do just basic military tasks. Now you have commanders probably fearing for their lives for failing. I mean, that's the Russian way, right? Uh, we're already seeing not only the generals who have been wiped off the Ukrainian face of the earth because they're think, doing things like using their cell phones, they're really in chaos. All the way down to the individual Russian soldier who we see refusing to fight, puncturing their own gas tanks, slashing their own tires, shooting their own officers. This is what happens when you don't invest in your people and when you have a belief about your military that you don't test and train and and all of that. Does that, in a way, help accelerate the end of this if that thing spreads? Because that, that kind of stuff has been happening all throughout the last few months. But if it keeps on and the longer it goes, I imagine there's going to be more of that. I mean, to, to add to what you were saying, there were other reports of, of even the Russian pilots being wary to fly into Ukrainian airspace sometimes. They, they, they turn around at the slightest, uh, you know, pushback. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it does get you to a, what we call a culmination point, right? When the military just can't advance. Like, you can't, no matter what you're doing, you can't push that, that group of formation or soldiers to go further, right? Many, you're talking about your soldiers that were not even knowing where they were going, uh, which is just a recipe for disaster, from pilots to soldiers on the ground thinking they're on a training exercise and finding out they're in Ukraine. It doesn't keep going for much longer. Putin doesn't have many other options. To include, like, beliefs that he could mobilize in all of the Russian population, and he can't. Politically, I don't think he can. But even if he did, and through tens of thousands of more Russian soldiers, he just it would just equal tens of thousands more casualties, which they're leaving on the battlefield, which translates, it really does, to an old soldier. It translates to the soldiers further not wanting to fight if you know you're, you're going to die a miserable death and be left on the battlefield to be picked up and put in a freezer truck. John Spencer, retired U.S. Army Major, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies, Madison Policy Forum. The book coming out, Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, Social Connections in Modern War. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Ford is dealing with three big recalls. Could put people in danger. It's asking the owners of 350,000 vehicles to take them in for repairs. Almost 40,000 of those should be parked outside because the engines can catch fire even when the vehicles are off. With us now is Paul Eisenstein, publisher and editor-in-chief of the DetroitBureau.com, which covers the automotive uh, world. Paul, thanks for being with us. Uh, I think some people probably, their, their ears perked up when they heard that these vehicles can catch fire even when they're not on. Does anybody know why? Now, that's one of the big problems, and, and you're right. Uh, perhaps... Very few things scare people more than hearing that their vehicles can catch fire. Uh, what's particularly unusual is that in some cases these just seem to ignite when they're parked. And Ford admits it does not exactly know what the problem is, nor has it developed a repair yet. Uh, all they know is that the the fires appear to start at the back of the engine compartment over on the passenger side. 
So this is one of those, okay, don't put it in the garage, and then what, we'll call you back, we'll send you a letter once we've figured it out? Yeah, not all of those. Uh, of the 350,000 vehicles that are covered by this, and I should mention these are late model, 2021 model year, Ford Expeditions and Lincoln Navigators. Um, of those 350,000, about 39,000 of those are expected to be uh, parked outside. So it's it's a relatively small group that they're really, really worried about. And I should also tell listeners, you can go onto the Ford site. Uh, there are places you'll be able to find it very easily where you can find specific recall information, and they should uh, by now have up a link which would tell you uh, more about the recall and whether your vehicle has to be parked outside. Uh, if not, you'll be getting a notification very quickly from the automaker. Uh, Paul, let me ask you this, because uh, there's no doubt that uh, some of this new technology that we find in our cars and trucks, is some of it is just great, uh, and it does all kinds of wonderful things, and it's designed to keep you out of uh, accidents or soften the blow if you get into one. But on the same token, uh, I've had dealers tell me they can't find qualified mechanics because the vehicles have become so complicated they can't find people who know how to fix them. Uh, and, and you wonder from all these recalls, this one and some past ones, if some of it isn't because the vehicles themselves are becoming really complicated. Oh, there's no question. Uh, when you go down and look at the list of specifications for any of the new vehicles, uh, they're going to have, a, a, basically, if you're looking online, they'll have a page full of what's called Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, ADAS, uh, forward collision warning that will help you avoid ramming somebody, which, you know, unfortunately gets very common on the L.A. freeways in rush hour, uh, will help you if you're backing up from not hitting, say, somebody riding a bike, walking, or pushing a baby carriage behind you, uh, keeping people out of the blind spot, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of new technology. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that we have a shortage right now because of all the chips, the semiconductors that are needed in these new vehicles. That said, they're saving lives. And at a time when the highway death rate is rising, it's pretty important to have this technology. The death rate would be substantially more without it. But we're going to need to see a lot more people trained. And that's, by the way, a very good thing to consider if you're looking for a career. Uh, the, the mechanics dealing with this new technology well, guess what? They're being paid spectacularly. Paul Eisenstein, publisher and editor-in-chief, the DetroitBureau.com. Paul, thanks. Well, you know, we uh, have talked, as you know, a lot about COVID. We will do so uh, when we come back a little bit later. But, you know, there are lots of other infections and diseases out there. My neighbors seem to have most of them. Have you heard about monkeypox, though? It's here, here in the U.S., case confirmed in Massachusetts. They've been scattered cases in Europe, possibly Canada. Uh, with us is Dr. William Schaffner, Professor of Preventative Medicine in Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for coming back and talking to us. So uh, the tweets and the Facebook posts are flying. No, not again. I don't want another pandemic to sweep on through. What is monkeypox? How worried should I be? You don't have to be very worried about this, Mike. It's not going to be a pandemic. It is a curiosity. Monkeypox is a virus that's part of the smallpox family. And you will remember, we eradicated smallpox from the globe. It lives in Africa, probably in small mammals, occasionally gets into primates, hence the name monkeypox. And of course, if it can get into monkeys, it can get into people. 
And so occasionally he gets into persons. And apparently that's what happened here. And perhaps someone picked it up in, uh, in Africa and then went to Europe. And now through close, usually rather prolonged contact, it's spreading in a chain of infection through Europe into Canada. And now the latest I've heard is we have one case in the United States and Massachusetts. When you say long, prolonged contact, I presume we're talking about sex. Not sex per se. It's just physical intimacy. Yes, some hugging. There may be kissing, but it hasn't got anything to do with the sexual act itself. It's more just very, very close contact, Charles. So spread through touch and not through the air? Uh, through the air, but very close. If you were with someone, for example, in a bar and you spent a couple of hours together and you were next to each other, talking to each other very closely, it could possibly spread that way. But this virus does not ex spread explosively the way COVID does. And so the epidemiologists really can, if they do interviews and people are accurate in what they tell them, they ought to be able to find all the contacts and figure out this chain of transmission. I'm sure there are people listening right now thinking, gee, I wonder if I have monkeypox. So what are the symptoms and what are the treatments? Well, what happens is after you're exposed, it takes about a week or two for this illness to this virus to incubate. And then you develop high fever. You get muscle aches and pains, headache. You really do feel uh, sick. You get swollen glands. And then the rash occurs. And it can occur principally on your head and on your arms and hands and legs, which is unusual. The trunk is relatively spared. And the rash turns out to be really firm, rubbery, dark blisters. These are not the blisters that rupture easily. These are much firmer than that. And they can last for a week or two before they resolve. In other words, you're going to know if you've got it. Yes, it's a nasty infection. And, and it's treatable. It is treatable. We can give symptomatic treatment and there are some antiviral drugs and monoclonal antibodies that can be used in treatment. And the infectious disease doctors, those specialists, they know how to take care of this. How do you gauge the reaction, especially we mentioned earlier, everybody, you know, posting about it, all the headlines, uh, screaming monkeypox. We're still in this pandemic. We don't want another one. Is this a good or bad that we get riled up about this one? Well, I don't think we should get riled up about, but it is a kind of a curiosity. It certainly piqued the interest of all the public health professionals and the infectious disease docs, and it will be an interesting story to follow. But it's not something that threatens in any way the larger community. But is there any sort of prevailing theory that's on the table now? Because, I mean, from what I've read, which is limited, but from what I've read, I mean, there are a few thousand cases in, I guess, Africa in any given year. So why now and why in North America and Europe? Well, first of all, in Africa, the number of cases appear to be growing and probably for two reasons. One, uh, smallpox is gone. So what's left is monkeypox. We probably didn't distinguish the two before. Number two, we now have better diagnostic tools. And number three, as the population grows, it's 
moving out into those environments closer to the reservoir, those mammals, and there are more people getting sick. Of course, on occasion, someone from Europe might get into that environment, pick it up, and bring it to Europe. There, there are really relatively few exportations of monkeypox into the developed world. This one seems to have a longer and cross-Atlantic chain of transmission, so it's a little more interesting and intriguing than usual. Dr. William Schaffner, Professor of Preventative Medicine and Infectious Diseases, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. More in-depth on the way uh, to come. We are talking about COVID, whether masks are making a comeback because of the uh, uptick in the cases again. And then at the end of the show, the jumping worms. They jump. You ready for that one? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. the big one you're looking forward that's to the one today. That, that, every, every day there's one story I look forward <laughs> to today. It's jumping worms. Jumping worms. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Southern California could be seeing more of another COVID surge. Cases and the number of people in the hospital have been on the rise. CDC now officially have just now put in the county into the medium transmission range. Indoor mask mandates could return if the county enters the high level, but are people really going to put masks on again? Or has COVID fatigue just set in too deep. Dr. Sumit Shanda is a professor in the Department of Immunology and Microbiology at Scripps Research in La Jolla. He'll soon lead the new Center for Antiviral Medicines and Pandemic Preparedness at Scripps. Doctor, thanks for being with us. I was at a restaurant last night, uh, pretty new, pretty big, lots of people. Um, I think I saw two people with masks on, nobody else. Uh, no matter what the CDC or the county, whether it's L.A., Orange County, you name it, says, are people ready to go back to what some of them anyway did a few months ago? Yeah, I, you know, I think that you know, there's two ways of looking at this. You know, one is what does the medical data say and then versus, you know, what, what are the politics and and and, and the, uh, the what people are are really willing to, to do. Right. The art of the possible here. And, and not letting perfect be the enemy of the good. I think what you're going to see is a lot of uh, mask recommendations. Um, I would be surprised if uh, there were a lot of mask mandates that were implemented. And 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 even if they were, uh, I think compliance is is going to be a, a, di a difficult thing. I think it's going to now we're at a point where people are going to need to use their best judgment, right, and, and assess their personal risk as they uh, uh, go through the, the this end of the pandemic. Well, yeah, look at the airports, right, because you're supposed to be wearing them at LAX and Burbank, and there's a sign on the door, but you can walk on through and a whole bunch of people aren't. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I think that, you know, uh, you know, virus fatigue, you know, we're done with the virus. The virus is certainly not done with us. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're if you're vaccinated and boosted and in good health, right, it's not uh, necessarily a, a bad trade off. Right. To say uh, I'm going to go outside and crowd of people. I still on an airplane will wear a mask and will wear an N95 mask. Right. But um, I think that getting mass compliance is, is, is going to be a difficult task for the governmental agencies uh, that are putting out um, these uh, recommendations. And I think that even if the numbers say we should all be wearing masks, you can see that most politicians and, and, and most uh, government agencies are just recommending them and not mandating them. 
wouldn't a, a perhaps better solution then going forward be to uh, really have a campaign for uh, companies, uh, public places, airports, theaters, to significantly upgrade their indoor ventilation so that it's better filtered, better airflow? So recognizing that people are probably not going to want to go back to wearing masks, at least the air they're breathing is more likely to be cleansed? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's, a, that's a long-term investment that needs to be made. Um, you know, in, in, in general, right, those are less efficient uh, air circulation patterns than uh, what we have. So there's a trade-off there, right, as far as cost goes and efficiency goes. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and you may reduce some sort of transmission, but most transmission happens when you're talking to somebody, right, and, and you're getting these viral droplets. So, so no amount of uh, air filtration is really going to cut back on that transmission pattern, right? And so the vast majority of transmission happens kind of face-to-face, person-to-person, not saying it can't happen, uh, but that's kind of a, a lower tier. So, I mean, there's, this is, but this is a great point, right? We have to now move to what the new normal is. We have to learn to live with the virus and figure out what's cost-effective and uh, what people are willing to do uh, and what are the trade-offs, right? And so, you know, if these offices want to, uh, are willing to spend the money to do this, to, to you know, uh, uh, bring your rest level down a little bit, then, you know, th- th- they will do it. But maybe some of these places aren't willing to spend the money. Before we, uh, that... yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, before we run out of time here, we mentioned you're, yeah. you're, you're starting something new. Tell us about this, this new venture. Oh, yeah, this, scripts. yeah. So, so uh, we just got a $67 million grant to make uh, drugs to help get us through this pandemic and prepare for the next pandemic. If we were better prepared for this pandemic, if we took SARS-1, more seriously and didn't think that was just a, 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 a one-shot event, uh, we wouldn't have a million dead Americans right now, okay? And so now our job is to really learn those lessons and make sure we don't, history doesn't repeat itself, make drugs for this pandemic and future pandemics so we'll be in a much better position the next time this comes around. And, and, and you know, at this point, we know that, that that's a win and an honor there. All right, Dr. Sumit Shanda, Professor in Department of Immunology, Microbiology at Scripps, and uh, the Center for Antiviral Medicines, Pandemic Preparedness, is going to make us some pills. Well, we've all seen worms. They dig around in the dirt. Generally, they don't you know, bother anyone or anything. And if you come across one, uh, you can usually just pick it up. Notice I said you could pick it up. I'm not. Did you do that as a kid? Play with pick the worms up? in the yard? That's no, what I did. No, I And roly-polies, I, I all that really, stuff. I never really, Caterpillars. I have to admit, I never really liked worms. Yeah. They're I mean, quiet. I kind of like them. Just yeah, well, slink around. Unless, yeah. unless you get the wrong one. A, what's a wrong worm? A jumping worm. A jumping worm. Yeah, it'll just, there it goes. I don't want a worm to Bouncing jump. down the street. <laughs> uh, they're here in California now, oh. and they're going to cause some problems. Ryan Huffmeyer, ecology and invasive species experts with the University of Minnesota Duluth is with us. Uh, Ryan, thanks. So how far do the jumping worms jump? Let's start there. Uh, thanks for having me. They don't, they don't actually jump. They just thrash around uh, very wildly when disturbed. <laughs> They're really strong. Thrashing worms, then. We'll rename them. <laughs> but but why do people call them jumping? Because do they look like they, they're jumping? No, when they thrash around, they do actually get off the ground. Oh, like they do. They, and they, they, they do bounce, but it's, it's not very high. All right, but but for, if you're a worm, that's probably like a big jump. <laughs> it's like, the, it's like <laughs> oh, Superman yeah, going have, over a building. They, they take the gold. 
Yeah, it's like one <laughs> one small jump for a worm, <laughs> one giant leap. Giant leap. Yeah. Right right over the garden. Um so <laughs> why well first off, where did they come from? Because they're not supposed to be here. Yeah. Correct. They're they're from uh Eastern Asia in origin. And how did they get here? Did they jump? <laughs> yeah, they jumped a ride with us. <laughs> Humans are really good at moving things around the globe. Uh things that we want and things that we don't want. And Primarily, you know, ornamental plants in a horticulture trade. Uh, that is one way that uh, the the eggs or the cocoons that uh, earthworms lay, and then the the earthworms themselves can live in that root ball as it's traveled and brought over. All right, and so that's you how they plant that plant here, and there you go. Yeah, that's how they made it here. Why do they present a problem? So they live in the top couple inches of the soil. And they can live in really, really high densities, and they have voracious appetites. So they love garden areas that have mulch and compost and and this fresh organic. So they can really, they just really, really consume it. And what happens is they they turn that top couple inches into just uh, granular soil, right? There, there's really no structure to it. And now, say you get a heavy rain, all that topsoil that had your nutrients gets washed out of the system. Do they have any natural predators here? Not that we know of yet. And, I, you know, I'm not too familiar uh, with the ecology in your region, uh, at least not in the Midwest. We do not have it. They do not have any natural predators. And I'm guessing down in your region, they don't either as of yet. Okay. So they get all the nutrients out of the soil. Bad news. You also mentioned the appetite. So they're going to chew through a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. They, they really... You know, what we notice around uh, the Midwest is, you know, when people put their mulch down, what used to, you know, be something that you would do every three, four years, uh, people who didn't realize they had jumping worms were wondering why they, you know, had to re-mulch basically every year. Uh, Now, I know I'm going to get emails about this, but how do we get rid of them? So, you know, the best way is don't introduce them in the first place. And that's key for any invasive species, right? Just uh, don't but introduce them in the first place. Yeah, but they're here. But so. once they're here, there's really there, there's really nothing you can do at the moment. There's there's no uh, known way yet to move them, remove them from the ecosystem once they're in the soil. Do we just hope the birds eat them? <laughs> you know, eventually, you know, if if you talk about hundreds of years, uh, eventually there'll be a transition, and and something will uh, something will end up, you know, using it as a food source. But uh, well, the, you know, again, go ahead. No, I mean, but there must be some way unless it's a crime to kill them so you know you can collect them and and you know just throw them away um you know that you could you i mean there are ways that you could sterilize your soil like if you had a smaller patch you know whether that's you know using sulfur or some other stuff like that but you're also going to kill all the beneficial things in your soil so you know it it is and it's kind of tough because it's not just they don't just have a defined boundary of where they're at Right. I mean, they could be all over. So you could treat one area and think you got them all. And a couple of years later, the population's back. Well, how do they deal with these worms in the places where they originated? You know, there they're part of the ecosystem. Right? So, so, so somebody eats predators, the okay. plants, the plants grew in conjunction with them. So they're just part of the ecosystem. Yeah, they're not called invasive jumping worms where they're from. They're just worms. They're just worms. <laughs> Do they look just like our worms? <laughs> so Will I tell? I mean, does it look just like an earthworm? Or once it starts thrashing, well, then I go, okay, this guy is different so than, than the others. The, the, the movement for sure. And then when you have, when they're adults, they have that ring on them, right? That little puffy ring. And with jumping worms, it's really close to their head. 
it, if you re, if you can remember back to when you were in biology in, in high school or middle school and you dissected that worm, worms are made up of segments, and you can see those segments, you know, with the naked eye. And with the jumping worm, you can count back, you know, 14, 15 segments, and that's where that clitellum or that ring will start. Uh, typical worms that we see of, you know, of, of European descent or some native earthworms, that typically is 25 or behind, you know, 25 or further back. So it, the, the little ring is significantly closer to the head. And yes, the thrashing motion, the movement, I like to say is just very unworm-like. It looks like a little snake when it's moving. All right. Look out for that. Uh, the uh, the thrashing jumping worms. Brian Huffmeyer, ecology and invasive species expert, University of Minnesota, and, Duluth. And if you get real up close to it and personal, you can see the little ring Just near it. Tell it to go away. We're, we're stepping it. Calling all birds. <laughs> get hungry for these guys. Yeah. All right. More in depth tomorrow.